Hey, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. What's going on? Oh, you know. How is your oh, you know internet that, connection? It's good, but I forgot to put my pop filter on. Pop, pop, pop. So, oh, see, should I'm, we start over? It's like, well, I don't know. Here, this is like this is like a postmodernism. <laughs> the artifice uh, is made visible. Hang on. This is the, the downfall of society if we don't care there to put go. a pop filter. There you go. Now it's just pop, pop, pop. Okay. Yeah, it's much better. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we were talking about internet connections, and I was thinking about our internet was out, I think, yesterday or day before, and then you see one spectrum truck coming over, and someone goes into the manhole, and you're just kind of watching it because you want internet, so you're like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> I thought of going there and asking him, like, hey, how long do you think it'll be? And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's probably going to be, he doesn't have the answer to the question, and it's not very helpful, so... And then you watch, and another truck arrives, and at some point there were four trucks, and all these people going yeah. down there. And I'm like, are they just restarting the device or replacing it? Yeah. And I'm thinking, you have to know a lot about technology to be able to fix net- network yeah, these equipment. Are like, this is not easy. These are like kind of like some kind of digital shaman or something who's searching yeah, for water. But, but when you think about it, like how many nodes there are in the network and how many people need connection, you think, oh, you need an army of network. It's like this hidden world that I don't know. They're building a a building near my house, like this huge, like complex of shopping and living. It's called the well, <clears throat> but there's no like the real well. Like when you think about it, like the is like that portal that you're talking about. This like fiber optic yeah. <laughs> portal is like this. As opposed to in traditional times, ancient times, you would build along a water site and be like, this is this this where mm-hmm. life will come from. Yeah, the the new river is this river of cable. It reminds me too of like um, Avatar and that tree of life. Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, and the USB um, connection to their horse creature. <laughs> yeah, we should we and, should do Avatar they, yeah. sometime. Well, we almost did a James Cameron movie yeah. this week. So, like at the outset, we we did at the end of last episode talk about how. Uh, oh yeah. Hey, we're gonna. I forgot all yeah, about you know, that. Yeah, we're gonna cover this this other movie. Um, the, the most, it's not a James Cameron he wrote the story but uh, Catherine, Bigel- it's a Catherine Bigelow yeah. Catherine Bigelow film um, written by um, and I guess co-produced by um, James Cameron and I thought it was going to be appropriate because you know our, the, we were talking about reality and um, and it has this idea of like in the future we'll trade realities like recordings of our lived experiences and they'll be like a playback device that's like, you know, through your brain and it'll be this neural thing. And I had this memory of watching this movie as a teenager in the, in the 90s and it came out right after the Rodney King riots. And I thought, oh, with all this stuff going on, like, you know, let me go back and, and re-watch that film and see how well it's aged. <laughs> mm. And, you know, obviously when we do this podcast, we actually don't do any pre-research. We're kind of just surfing a wave like we've talked about. And surfing a wave through our own lived experience and and the artworks that have inspired, or ref, or that we've responded to or been moved by during that experience, and this is one case where you called me up halfway through the film and like, have you watched it yet? Yeah, because <laughs> it. Okay, so the Strange Days, the movie is kind of obscure. It's it's not on any of the streaming platforms. You can't rent it on any of the streaming platforms. Uh, so we had to illegally download it. And I started watching it 
first of all, I got annoyed. It was some kind of, it was more than four gigs, so it, I couldn't put it on the thumb drive. I can't compress, <coughs> I can't compile the thumb drive to NTFS. Well, I gave you a high quality yeah, version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. So I had to watch it in bed on the laptop. It's already annoying. And then I'm watching it. And so the way the movie works is they put on this thing on their head that they call a squid, and then they put a wig on top so you don't see the recording device. And then they record everything. So then there's a scene with a rapist, and he's raping a woman, but he makes her wear the virtual reality thing so she sees herself being raped. And I'm like, is Jeremy really approving of this film? Does he want me to see this? It's it's kind of... uh, I don't know if it was disturbing, but I was like, that's not necessary for the story. And... I think, like, you know, the, when the movie was made is relevant because it was, and it was made by two white people in response to, you know, this Rodney King movement, which was definitely a black protest movement that everyone got involved with, of course, right? And Hollywood kind of jumped in, I think, to make this movie in, you know, response. But there were other movies that were made too, you know, by, by, by black filmmakers and white filmmakers alike. Was that the era but of so many- Menace to Society and films like that? Yeah, yeah. If you think about the late '90s, after yeah. that, at that period, <clears throat> but this movie does it in like a semi in the sci-fi context, and it and it tries to do the right thing so badly. <laughs> I think is what I ended up deciding. Um, and it, so it's a movie of good intentions with kind of really awkward, uh, squirm-worthy results. Um, and, yeah. But if you watch it, it's like if you manage to find it, all it, the you actors could are great. It. Yeah. Really, like uh, they're all top notch, and somehow the art direction and the costumes, and it's a lot of raving. And raving is very difficult to capture in film and make it make it feel like it's a real thing. So it all felt like a bad high school movie. I think the worst thing about it, though, was how it engendered stereotypes to such a, like every character was one dimensional as a oh, stereotype. Yeah. yeah. And including the villain, you know, and you you called me and you're laughing out loud about this. Well, <laughs> I never t- I never mentioned this in the podcast because we never reviewed a thriller. But I hate thrillers and especially the late '90s thrillers. And it's always there's a cop and he's kind of on his way down and he's falling and uh, all of a sudden all his credit cards get canceled and he only has one friend and the friend helps him and then at the end the that friend turns out to be the worst of all. It's always the yeah. same story. And so it, it, this movie was two and a half hours. And, and about two hours, I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's yeah. It's an auteur movie. Yeah. yeah. He's the bad guy. <laughs> and it, and it, yeah. And it's early, early and, and And it was um, also the bad guy confession in a sort of James Bond way, where the villain wants <laughs> to confess how clever his plan is. And he even says it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm going to tell you the story. It's too good not to tell you. It's a bit of a stupid Bond thing, but I'll do it anyway. And But, it, it, but uh, yeah. the, the thing I couldn't wrap my head around is, there's a when you see movies from the 50s it's so obvious that it's fake and uh, they shoot outdoor scenes indoors and they shoot they're in a car but it's a projection of a landscape driving behind them mm-hmm, Very, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. this movie has it doesn't do as bad but still everything feels so fake like someone's playing a rock star someone's like a a, a drugged out music manager someone is a rapper and none of them feel at all convincing or charismatic they're all just like you're not a cool rapper that people follow you're not a sleazy manager you're not a bad cop yeah. and and everything seems like uh, it's it's so, yeah, it's, it's one dimensional no but it's it's there's a very particular hollywood aesthetic where everything's filmed in la and it, they it, it's like when you see a homeless person in a in a movie but they're too handsome and you can see that the streaks of dirt were just applied that day 
<laughs> that kind of thing. Like maybe maybe yeah. the problem is everyone's too. Which handsome. we talked about it. Yeah. We talked about the week before, right? When we were talking about Oposto, we were talking about how it just doesn't work to put Hollywood yeah. people yeah. in a in a con- and I think that's also what doesn't work from the director and writing standpoint is that this is not the lived reality of Bigelow and Cameron. They were not the victims of racism and police brutality, which the film tries to address. But like I said, does so poorly. And a big deal that, was made when the film came there out. There are exceptions of people who come from a different background to tackle a subject. Yeah, and we're, we're definitely going to talk about yeah. that today. But there, there's, um, there's, there's one thing that was boasted about, I think, you know, in regards to that film, if you look it up, outside of the plot, which, it, again, seems like everything should be great, like all the right intentions. But one of the things that was a revolution at the time is James Cameron's very much a technology-first director. And there, he put in this tremendous effort, and there was PR built around how when there are these sequences where you see the other person's reality and in these sequences they had to develop you know you're you're, it's like you're in the person's body and they had developed these special you see their hands and their feet yeah you see their point of view yeah Yeah. and i i don't know i've been playing with these like uh glasses that snap sent me called spectacles that allow you to record your point of view and so i'd been reflecting like you know what was that like and i want i really wanted to revisit this film for all these reasons and see like does it do anything interesting but of course in the movie that that they don't do anything interesting even with that point of view they kind of it, it feels just like a, a really shitty intro to a video game yeah so uh, all that said you know you and i saw, said like okay look we can review this movie and we can do it we can't just we don't have to do just good reviews on this <laughs> podcast but we, but this we was almost also... unwatchable. But then I watched it out of a sort of, sort of a cruel, cruel way of seeing like how bad could it be. Well, and if you were to talk, we could also intellectualize it because, like, ultimately, it's like the movie comes out before smartphones exist. Talks about police brutality and like the whole movie hinges on this recording of a police yeah. shooting. Yeah, everything a black man everything they mention so. is is genuine and is an actual problem and is very important and and and, like and it speculates not on only, a future that we're living. But in. not only is it imp- an important issue to talk about, it also seems something that would translate well to film. Yeah, but I think like twenty five years it did not. But age even well, the bad it, cop didn't seem like a angry guy you seems like a nice guy trying to act like an angry guy i don't know if you ever saw bad lieutenant i think one of the cops actually was the terminator 2 who's like from no that's the guy no 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 oh yeah i know what you mean (laughs) but (laughs) did you see bad lieutenant the original Um, with harvey Keitel? yeah yeah. but yeah yeah no i have not i mean he's such a scumbag asshole and you're really like wow how can someone be that bad but you don't doubt for a moment that he's He's a bad lieutenant. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's, so there's something. I think one of the issues with the movie is that the actors are too attractive. That's part of it. Yeah, and we did again. So we talked about all of those things the week before. So then the question became: Okay, well, like if that's then, true, then also how, the, how do we respond to this? The world is collapsing, and everybody's angry. And how do we position yeah. this podcast in this? time of protest so so what's happened since 1995 right and i i looked back on on some films and you had brought this film up before um but one of my favorite films if not my favorite film in the last um decade is a film by barry jenkins this film moonlight written by um it's it's based on a play by terrell uh, mccraney and who's like a macarthur genius but it's like 
uh, I didn't know all that when I saw it for the first time. I kind of stumbled in the theater. And, um, you know, I left obviously like in tears, <laughs> but, um, it's a, it, for me is a very visceral, emotional film. And when we're talking about reality transference, the way strange days kind of suggested the future might look like, I think like this was one film that I thought, um, you know, it, it's, it's traditional movie making. in so much as it's not like there's no new technologies. Um, there's some really amazing, uh, camera work and directing, amazing talent but it did better a better job of this of the idea of reality and reality transference than any movie i'd seen and also barry jenkins talks about how this film when he saw the play by terrell he talks about how it was like he was seeing a memory of a memory and this is a movie about young black men and growing up and masculinity but what was really weird for me is this is the first time i went to go see a movie about black identity and felt like it said something about my own identity and the identity of my family. And I get very emotional talking about it because it was, it was very emotional to watch. And I just watched it this morning. Like I still have dried tears Mm -hmm. on my face. Um, And so, you know, in terms of like reality transference, man, it, it, it kind of, it's transcendent in that regard. Yeah. Um, I I looked up some reviews online. Should we briefly talk about the plot? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, 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 we should definitely talk it's about the plot. It's kind of a dense story, so I, I don't want to spend 45 minutes on the plot. But uh. Well, I, don't th- I think narratively it's quite simple, right? It's about, um, you know, it's about a gay black man growing up in a difficult neighborhood well, he, in Miami. Yeah, he, it starts off, he's really young, and it starts with a chase scene. There's a couple of bullies chasing him, and he hides in a house that's probably used for hiding drugs, an abandoned house. And the drug yeah. dealer shows up, and he's not mean. He's kind of nice to him, and then helps him out a little bit, and they start becoming friends. And but his mother is very worried. Like, why is this guy taking care of my child? And his mother starts off. She's a nurse, I think. She's in a nurse outfit, but she she yeah, goes she downhill over the years. The story takes yeah. place over about twenty years, I would say, in three chapters. Um, yeah, like but like twenty. Yeah, about twenty years. Yeah. yeah. And so, and it's in three parts. Yeah, so um, he's child, teenager, and grown man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the, this kid is, um, it's not really said in the beginning, but they, they kind of hint at that he might be gay. Uh, I think it's not about that so much as like he's bullied. Yeah, he he's, doesn't he's, feel he's like he's extremely he fits bullied, in. and his mother's a drug addict, so that doesn't help. He doesn't, he never talks. I mean, he reminded me so much to like a ridiculous degree. And if my brother's listening, I do love you. Of my younger brother, mm. that it, like my younger brother was uh, is on the spectrum, and is is also a gay man. But when when he was growing up, he wouldn't talk. Like my mom would yell at him to talk, and you know he didn't feel like he fit in. Him and I were best friends. I didn't but know like that. outside because I I, outside, I was watching yeah. the movie and I was like. Does he really have zero friends? Like, there's not a moment in the in the twenty years that you see where he's just having fun. And I found well, he was like, there's that scene where he's dancing, you know, yeah, at yeah, the yeah. dance studio. Yeah, yeah, it's a brief clip, but yeah, but but I feel like even the the outcasts in my high school, they still had a group, and maybe I wasn't paying attention. Maybe there were people that were painfully shy, but I I don't know anyone that I know. That has zero mm-hmm. friends, so it's, it's completely. Well, my brother started out that way, okay. and over time, though, um, 
that changed. It actually, be, by the time he was in high school, it was kind of the opposite. He was always surrounded by like, you know, dozens of women. <laughs> like I was like, I felt like more isolated than he did at, at that point. Yeah. I mean, if you just looked at it on the surface level. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so I, I identified with the character and I think that's a very personal thing. Yeah. Um, one thing about, I think both the writer of the film, Terrell and the, you know, director Barry Jenkins is that they both grew up in the same neighborhood that this film takes place in in Florida, in Liberty city in, in Miami, I guess. And a lot of the story actually happened to both of them. They both had um, mothers who were had crack cocaine addictions or dealt with di- issues of addiction, and which is really also like you know, he, you know Barry Jenkins. I saw an interview with him. He talks about how like just finding someone else who had had the same lived experience as me. Now Terrell, of course, like Barry uh, self-identifies as straight. Terrell um, as gay, and so it was like it was a kind of an allyship to make this film. They were connected and they really want, they were really kind of uh, for Barry, he was trying to be a good ally to Terrell, but he also wanted to speak to his own experience while also including Terrell's incredible writing. But I th- I just think um, what I wanted to say was like, I also thought that, um, you know, you'd think of this, if you watched this movie on at face value, you'd be like, Oh, these are just like black American cliches, right? Like this is what Hollywood has always done. You mean the, the tough like, guy the and the ghetto? Yeah. And the they present Yeah. They present in drug addiction. It's so cliche. And now I just want to tell like a tiny story. There's just like too many life stories in this for me. Um, <clears throat> not to tell some of them, but when I went to grad school, uh, in Syracuse, I got a free ride. I got like a fellowship and you know everything was paid for i i thought that that was the norm actually this is how privileged i am i was like you go to grad school you don't pay for grad school it's ridiculous (laughs) you know like you make sure that you're doing amazing work and they pay you and anyway so i there was one other person that had um the same fellowship or a different fellowship but a fellowship in my program and it was uh an artist named latoya ruby fraser and she showed up to class and by the way, she's super famous now, way more famous than than any of us. Um, but she showed up to class with these photos and stories of her youth growing up with her crack addicted mother, and then showed videos in class, like where she'd go home, and you know the you know kind of the community. And it wasn't like there was this love between her and her mother, but there was also this distance. And this film like nails that too. Like it's not cliche. Like this, uh, there there were aspects. From and I obviously I didn't have Latoya's lived experience, but at first when I saw Latoya's work in school, I was like, "What is this? This is like, is this for real?" And it totally was for real. And um, I mean, and she captured it in an incredible way. But she was also the only black student in my entire art his, historical life, like from in terms of school. Like I went to school for what eight years, seven years. There was never another black art student. You know, mm-hmm. and so yeah, same for me. F- and so the first one, you know, that I meet is telling this story, and you and you're thinking this is cliche, but it's it wasn't right. Like it was it was her lived experience, and so I don't know to tell that story and for it not to come for it to come from people who actually had that lived experience. I think it's pretty powerful. Um, it changed it, my it, life meeting Latoya at the time. It's but. interesting uh, speaking to you and your brother because I I was watching the movie and. Uh, Oh yeah, and by the way, Latoya was also a gay woman who grew up in this context. Sorry, she just had, like had so many disadvantages, yeah. and I had every advantage. Um, it was, I don't know. Yeah, it really, it obviously was shocking for me at the time, and changed me forever. 
But watching this movie, I kind of felt like uh, it was hard to relate. How can someone be that quiet and that repressed? There's a moment where uh, he has one gay experience at the beach. There's a scene when they're Mm -hmm. teenagers. And after that, there's a lot of fighting. He has to go to juvenile prison uh, I don't know the correct term and he becomes a gangster sort of which they don't show and he just becomes tough like after that well he rebuilds himself yeah, right yeah. like so I think but, you but know, then one of the things you see maybe the point I was getting at that the end yeah. of the movie he meets the guy that he had a fling with um, and he tells him well I've never been touched by anyone since that moment and it's just hard for me to understand like okay maybe there was 10 years between those two moments that there wasn't mm-hmm. accidental adventures or experiments or whatever. And it, I understand there's mental illness and autism and culture. And, well, it, yeah. I don't even know if that's made explicit. I think that there's this feeling of in the first opening, you know, so it's the three parts. In the first part, you know, he meets this drug dealer. He's being bullied at school. The drug dealer says, hey, at a certain point in life, you, you know, he's like, what do people call you? They call me, they call me little. He's like, well, at a certain point in life, you got to determine, you know, what you're going to call yourself or who you're going to be, right? Because people used to call, you know, this woman once tried to call me blue or whatever because of the moonlight and the way it hit my skin. But, you know, at a certain point, you got to assert yourself and you got to choose who you're going to be. And this this guy is the first person really in the film to give this guy, the you know, the main character love and it's the to first say, hey, sort of solid... Uh, uh, role model yeah and and to touch him and to say hey you know and to, and to like speak to him in a way where he feels supported and he's like and and whoever you want to be it's okay you can be who you want to be and, and that's okay right like and so that's like a that that's the seed for the whole movie right that you know people are trying to tell you who you are but that's not how this has to work right and then the next you know chapter is he's a teenager He's still getting bullied, but this event, you know, this it leads to this tension with a guy, a bully at school, where there's a big fight, and he, you know, gets beat up by um, a friend who he has his first, you know, real sexual encounter with in the prior scene, and it's there's just like so much raw emotion. Well, it's basically he never expresses himself, uh, and even gets beat up severely by a group, and then. The school counselor says you have to press charges, and he's like, "No, no, I don't want to snitch or whatever." And the only way he can express himself as somebody is he runs into the classroom and breaks a chair on the bully's back. Well, what he decides is, I think the way I read that scene yeah. is he remembers the the drug dealer that had shown him love, and like, hey, at a certain point, you have to stand up for it's, yourself. But it, that's the funny thing, and I understand, but. American culture is so violent that you're just no, 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 in, I know. in movies that that's the But that's only why I think answer. this movie is really interesting. Yeah. So then the third the third, third section says, "Hey, like he reconnects with this, you know, this encounter that he this um this gay man that he had had an encounter with earlier in high school." Um and I've skipped over the most important scene in the movie where they share this gay like this why am I saying gay kiss? Oh, it sounds so awkward the way I'm saying it, but like they share their first kiss together ever. And it's, you know, his, the first time him ever touching a person and being touched. And then he talks about in the third, he drives out to meet this guy like 15 years later, 10 years later. He's, he's, he's moved to Atlanta since then. So he moved, drives down to Miami and they encounter each other again. But by now, now he's like, 
he's become a drug dealer and he's got you know grills on and he's like super muscular and this guy that he shared a kiss with you know that had been the one guy there for him in high school that wasn't there to bully him his one friend and his first sexual encounter is like why are you posing this way like what what is this you know what is this persona you're putting on that's not who you are and he you know he says you don't know who i am right um and he's like, I don't know who you are. I'm the only person, you know, who knows who you are. I might even know you better than you know yourself based on the way you're projecting. And and you realize that all of this throughout the whole movie, this this poor man hasn't been able to be himself because he's tried to respond to what others have told him to be. And in our culture, you know, and some and in specifically in some black communities, that can be like one of being a tough guy. Um, and so if you're, if you're growing up gay in a neighborhood like that, but even in not, like, even if it's in a small town, like people I've known, or even if you're someone like my brother, it like when you're first figuring out your identity, you're trying to blend in, you're not, you know, and being yourself is really precarious, but some people live their whole life that way. And then, and so it's just such a tender, touching thing when they break through that way. Sort of pick at the movie because... I looked up reviews online, and everyone said this is the movie of the decade. It's incredible, the photography, the acting, the directing, the story. So I, I want this episode to be more than just saying, hey, this movie's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, then, we can pick but it But then it's it very apart. treacherous having any criticism of the movie when you're in a very privileged position, and this movie's about people that grow up in, in the worst circumstances. Like if you had to make a setup, mm-hmm. uh, it's like being artistic shy introvert drug addicted mother no father and a tough neighborhood and poor and it's like it's about as bad as it gets it's all the check boxes for sure yeah yeah so then for me to go like oh this movie doesn't hit this note and that note and uh, <laughs> that's not how i grew up it doesn't make a lot of sense but well one of the yeah but one but of, at the same the time i just want to say like just yeah. praising a movie for an hour i don't think makes for a very compelling podcast so might not be interesting, but yeah. so you could look at it too. You know, one critique you might b- want to bring forward is that Barry Jenkins said, like, he wanted to bring the art house to the hood, right? And so, you all, if you look at him as an author, he went to like uh, art school, and actually, he talks about how Terrell went to an art high school in you know and escaped the neighborhood faster than him, and actually, his career was further along before they made Moonlight together. But basically, if to my point about um, Latoya, if you're a black artist and you get into art school, you're the like the chances are you're you're not surrounded by other black students, right? And so, to actually succeed in that environment, because I can remember the way we treated uh, Latoya when we first saw her work, actually is like we we kind of critique the shit out of it to be honest like we're like we shouldn't throw any punches for the for this and we were like this is manipulative you're taking advantage of like the people in your neighborhood your poor mother like and we it's almost like we were trying to tell her how to emote and so i guess one of the things you could criticize in regards to this film is like it it uses a lot of convention to tell um like it uses the like the white mode of filmmaking uh, to tell a story that's not necessarily um, about that, uh, and so and it like like it's a narrative. Like for example, the original play, um, the McCraney play, is asynchronous, right? Like it's not a it's not a continuous narrative. But the first decision Barry Jenkins made was to make it 
um, one narrative a sequence so that you could sequence. like a chronological sequence. Yeah. Um, and he said that he wanted you to be see the same person that you can be multiple people throughout your life, yeah. right? Like that that you can't that a person is not just one thing. That we have the ability to grow and change, and that was going to make it easier to tell that story in in a, you know traditional ninety minutes. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like I'm just trying to get to a place where we might talk about some of the nuance, which would be around. Um, you know, how you develop that, well, uh, the, I, I, a, how you make a film. One of the things I like about the film is uh, this sort of, it shies away from the glorification of the ghetto, which a lot of movies, uh, I yeah, think in the sure. 90s, they, you show the worst, but the characters are so fun and charismatic. The same with mafia films. Yeah, you put films. like hip hop, a hip hop track on top of it. Yeah. And it's like, and then that's not you what... You get this weird <laughs> moment where suburban kids around the world are like, oh, I want to dress like that. I want to drink the same drinks and smoke what they smoke and hang out and get a car that looks like theirs and et cetera. So it, mm-hmm. it doesn't do that. And it, it, there's a lot of subtleties and nuance. I still i understand why there's a violent part in the film but i wonder if the film had been stronger if it hadn't been with the actual physical violence i guess it had to well one of the difficulties here like i I mentioned earlier is like for two white men to look at this movie and for it to be the expression of someone else's lived experience that we did not have like we did not have these experiences no but i'm I'm, I'm talking about the the history of american filmmaking and always having violence as the pivotal answer for any conflict but i don't think it's it's not crucial to the 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 plot in so much as like there is very little like i said i think there's very little narrative to this film it's almost just like three portraits like you i could you could argue that you could do this as three photos this movie Mm mm-hmm and the first photo would be the little boy in the arms of the drug dealer in the water. Like there's this baptism mm-hmm. kind of like where he teaches him to swim. That's the that's the still that's going to be seared into your brain. That's the first yeah. portrait. This, so this the portrait of being supported in in the water. You know this life or death situation where he says you're in the center of the world. It's like such a, like a beautiful line. And then the second uh, portrait would be. Um, the portrait of him having his first intimate moment, this first sexual experience with another man and that first kiss and what that means to him expressing his whole self or being comfortable with who he is. And then the third portrait, you know, might be something, you know, what would be from the, the third section would be that last scene, the very last shot of the whole movie where he's, his head is in the hands of his boyhood crush and friend and there, and and it's the first time he's been touched since that the scene. Yeah, and he's um, vulnerable. Previous. But those three portraits comprise. Yeah, he's vulnerable, right? Like he, at last, he he can let go of all of the the armor and that he's put on the spectacle for others, like that he's had to put on because no one will let him be himself. Those three portraits, I think, it's just three shots, right? Do, like, do you think that entertainment is? Uh bifurcate it i just think of stand-up comedy that there used to be okay there's set there's five comedy specials on comedy on hbo per year and now there's 120 and that we're going to have a very fractured splintered cultural experience with certain people the same way the mm. news is it, well I know, maybe, I know maybe what i was so addressing is, is that this movie is a movie that everyone agrees is a great movie 
but not mm-hmm. not everyone watches it. You think so? I don't know. I don't know how many people saw it. I, I think, think a lot uh, of people see it and put it in their queue, and they're like, oh, "I'm a little bit tired, not tonight," and then they postpone it. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think I think for me again, it was very personal because again, coming to terms with my own identity has been a lifelong exercise, even in the workplace. Like, so let's talk about masculinity, like in cultures that support masculinity. In corporate culture does it like this, like. Show this kind of chauvinist, tough guy masculinity. The Wolf of Wall Street sort of thing. Yeah, but like honestly, I've worked in tech for a decade, and the the people that got ahead the fastest were the ones with the loudest voices that could you know kind of threaten their way to the top. And I just I I was I I really don't I can't function that way. Like I get very like it it literally hurts my body to be that way. And so you know you know so I actually just as a reflection, like I I was crying last weekend because it was like last week was a very emotional week for all of us um and if you're you know if you're working in a, a, cor- a company it was for you too and i know there's a lot of criticism for companies just like jumping on the bandwagon but that's what you need to know is inside these companies there are factions of people that are trying to do the right thing and they really in, and, and quite often they're like there's not a lot of you think they're homogeneous they're not they're just like any society there's like heterogeneity within companies brands are you know have this idea that everything should be consistent but there's a lot of inconsistency inside of a company so a lot of people were like you know struggling inside of companies outside of companies obviously even more so but um i had had a difficult week i broke down like crying in front of my team like just totally bawling <laughs> uncontrollably yeah on zoom yeah you know i felt you know, I felt both safe in my own home, which maybe is part of it, like crying at a movie in an airplane, but also like the what triggered my tears was this like young designer on my team, the newest designer on my team saying, and you know, she's she's told us her story. We do this little thing where we tell each other our life stories. And her story was one of like so much displacement and she came from Korea and then moved to different parts of the world and, you know, had a lot of experiences of not fitting in or belonging. And then her first, I asked her to, she hadn't said anything. I asked her, Hey, can I give you a voice? Can you say something? And what she's, her first thing was like, I think I could do a better job listening to and understanding how I contribute to institutionalized racism. Or that's a paraphrase of what she said, but like her humility and just like selflessness, like just like washed, like just completely took away any feeling I had of like having to put on Mm -hmm. a, you know, a front, like, because you're often in these leadership situations and you're like, I've got to be in charge. I've, I've got to be unemotional. But like, that's <laughs> not the situation we're in. We're yeah. in a very emotional situation right now. What's weird is uh, I, I just grew up, if you look at it, about as privileged as it gets. And uh, I don't have to feel bad about that. But uh, then I work so much by myself that I don't have any interactions on that level, whereas, like, what do we as an organization decide to do? And then even the last few years, I've been isolating myself. I unfollowed everyone from social media. And, like, I just want to be in my own world and, like, just sort of going into dream world and going into states of shutting the world out. That's I've been actively doing that for the last four or five years. Um, so then it's very weird when you see the world in turmoil and everything I've been doing is like oh I just want to ignore the world so I can focus and create calm and uh, peace and that's my contribution 
Mm. Um, so I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it's more in response to you and hearing Christina at work and everyone who deals with people on a regular basis. And I'm just like going in hermit mode for the last five years. So this lockdown is not even that different for me. And then, but what if being like a hermit was like one of the ways that you centered yourself and you were more you? Like, yeah, yeah. And what if, you know, what if respecting that peace that you were seeking, you know, is the same respect we lend it, we lent to everyone, right? Like, I think everyone is seeking well, something. Well, maybe, maybe what I'm you know? trying to say is uh, that's the way I could be, I feel like I can contribute in the best way by doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. But, but I mean, maybe, I think maybe I, I, then... Um, I think it came up a lot on this podcast is like, is an artist selfish by doing what he or she wants to do? Yeah. I mean, one of, even one of the tensions in the, the film would be like the, the character becomes a drug dealer because the first person to show him care also was a drug dealer. Right. Yeah. I mean, and then that same drug dealer had also ruined his mother cause he dealt drugs to his mother in the movie. But, um, I heard a interview with Terrell where he says like, well, that was inspired by, this drug dealer in my neighborhood that taught me how to ride a bike. <laughs> and it was like such an act of like tender care. Like I really my you know, I really looked up to this guy who cared mm-hmm. about me mm-hmm. in this moment. Yeah. And um, so, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, I think we all show care and love in different ways and we can choose to receive or project it however uh, we like, but ultimately like we're in this little play together, right. Where everyone is kind of, choosing their character and sometimes characters are being chosen for them anyway i think at the end of the day this is what the reason i enjoyed the film as an artist was that um you know i've often talked about persona on the podcast but persona is a strategy for dealing with a world that won't accept who you are right so let's exaggerate who we are i do think if if anything the most interesting part of this movie is that it uh, uh, shines a whole new light on a genre that kind of there's a point where you make a movie that's so real that everything else before it becomes ridiculous <laughs> and i think this movie did that like uh yeah I, yeah yeah I, you're not going to come I out with some movie about the, the, basketball the tv and... show the wire sort of introduced a new level of realism there were also gay characters and they were showing it from all sides not just the tough guys um that's right there was um god what's the character's name is my favorite with character. the long coat in the shotgun, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. But they were showing the whole sort of the problematics from the political point of view, from the distribution point of view, from the police point of view, from all sides of the story. But this one is much more personal. So I think it really, uh, yeah, I, I, I wanted to dissect it a little bit and critique it a little bit. It's but, very introverted, but, though, right? Like, yeah. But he's not even fully self-aware. And that's one thing I think is interesting, like, um, is that people in, in the early on, like other people are talking about him gay before he even really recognizes that in himself. Yeah, and it, it, for me that was again young personal to even because think about it, but he already gets bullied with it. Well, yeah, I don't know if you grew up this way, but like um, for me, like that's what people did to me all the time. Like I was, my mom and dad assumed I was gay until I don't know, I was in my twenties, um, mm-hmm. and I have two gay siblings, and so it, it wasn't that it was unacceptable, though there was tensions around that as well. But like you know, why don't you have a girlfriend or why do you look like a girl or, yeah, you know, yeah. why don't you behave like the rest of us? And and you're like, I don't even know who I am yet. Like that, that like process of building identity. It is, <laughs> it is was, funny because it does seem 
cruel to ask someone who's overweight why are you fat or someone who doesn't have a relationship why don't you have a relationship um totally but, uh, you know it, and even in art schools where we ask students to say you know reflect their identity in their work while they're forming their yeah, identity but at know? the same time if you i feel like a lot of uh i don't know what the balance is between being real and being careful because you can also be too careful and then never really talk about anything so Mm-hmm. As a parent or as a teacher, or uh, yeah, sure, this is a safe space, man. Yeah, I, I mean, um, uh, I have no idea. I, I, I think Dutch people are pretty blunt, so I grew up that way. Like, oh, you have a weird nose. Why is your nose weird? That's like a normal <laughs> way of talking. <laughs> and so, well, that's interesting. I, I uh, don't think I had any. Uh, identity issues that were weird so i didn't have a hard time with that so yeah but at the same time like if i was like see this is what i'm going to do like i don't want to project your identity on you because i think you're one of the beautiful things about you since i met you is you're always willing to self-assert you're like no this is what is right for me in fact even stopping the podcast for a period of time was like no i know it's right for me i'm aware i'm self-aware enough to know i don't feel comfortable this is not right for me right now Mm mm-hmm So that's something that I would say I'm terrible at, right? Like quite often I'm trying to please others. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And a lot of the mistakes, it's taken me a lot longer to become comfortable. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Than you are. I think the 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 issue. I think one of the difficult difficult issues is uh, when you being an artist at end of the road is selfish. So even. Ai Weiwei taking a picture of himself in the pose as a refugee, you can interpret that in so many ways. Does he have good intentions or is he using the the, the media landscape to further his uh, accumulation of wealth? And it's like so many ways of looking at every action an artist does. Is that selfish or is it... And mm-hmm. I I worry about the weaponization of art. In that regard, like that people would say that there's good art and bad art depending on how selfish it is. Yeah, and that uh, that there's no more place for dreamy, nuanced, abstract, uh, mm-hmm. unuseful things. It's like, how can you talk about a cup of tea when there mm-hmm. are protests outside the door? I mean, I don't think that if this film had been about um, you know, a white kid growing up in, in you know England, it would have been a better or worse no, film. No. I think that that is also like one of the things that No, 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 but I'm saying beautiful. I'm saying if this movie had been F- Ferris Bueller, like just a fun movie about a suburban rich white kid growing up. Well, we also need that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But not that's not even the, for me Mitch Hedberg is the best example where mm-hmm. uh, his comedy is just observations. It's like one of his jokes is like rice is great if you're really hungry and you want 2000 of something. <laughs> like it, it, that anyone from any background could have made that movie. I guess it sounds a little different if the person is Asian. But uh, it, it, other examples is it about ballpoint pens or about... It, 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 here's another joke. Um, an escalator can never break. It just becomes a staircase. Yeah, I mean, I think it, the reason and, this and there's, there's political a, is only because, like, that's absolutely true. Yeah, but what I'm However, saying is, like, at this moment, that tone of voice is, is not relevant. But let me put it this way. What if I told you that you, you know, you could only, um, that joke, if that joke, you told it and 
um, you said to, you know, you had five people in front of you and said only one of you are allowed to tell that joke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the people from the other point. backgrounds yeah. aren't, wouldn't be allowed to tell that joke. No, but that's, that that's maybe like, exactly my point is that uh, I think the last few years the art world has had a reckoning of showing a lot of ignored artists, whether they're female mm -hmm. or a different color or a different country. Or, and I think that's been awesome. But, and I think I've been opened up to a lot of work that I didn't know before that's actually great. Yeah. Uh, I just hope it doesn't mean that the people that come from an underrepresented area have to talk about that topic. Oh, yeah, of course. Like I, I, so when I was teaching at NYU, I, a student taught me something like extremely valuable. I was teaching a class on augmented reality bodybuilding, which was about building identity with software and like how we construct identity. And so a lot of the conversation was about like, hey, how are you constructing identity through your work? To my point earlier, you know, and she was a woman of color. She happened to be a larger woman and she self-identified in that in a conversation we had where she got angry with me and rightly so. And she said, because I was saying like, hey, like, but what does this mean in relationship to your lived experience and your history? And she's like, I don't, my whole life people have been telling me that I have to tell stories about how I'm a yeah, large exactly. black woman. Yeah. And like, I just want to make, just like you, I want to make like cool software. Yeah, what and if she wants to talk about to, the structure of yeah. software and how that changes yeah. perception? Yeah. I for once don't want it to be about like, you know, me and the stereotypes that have followed me around my whole life. And I think that, that again, this film, I think, does, tries to make No, that, but I, you know, I think there's a place for, for both of like... Uh, I'm not sure I understand. Oh. Sorry, that's Siri chiming in, our third yeah. I think there's a place for both, but I feel like what I worry about is that today's times, media and political action is so intense that it's very hard to make work that is not intense. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if that's true. It's my gut feeling that a lot of things... Do you think this... Well, let's like take it out of the present moment and ask, like, was that true in 1995? Do you think it was true in like 1978 well, or something like that? There's an interview or? with David Hockney. Uh, I think I mentioned this before. And he... I think someone... The, the Iraq war was happening and the interviewer asked, why don't you make work about the current crisis? And he's like, well, as long as I can remember, the world has always been in crisis. And he, he lived through <laughs> World War II. I mean, that's, yeah. that's not a small thing. So he didn't make paintings about the Holocaust and be like, oh, this, this is so important. We have to make paintings about it. Yeah. Um, so he just persevered through decades and decades. And then you, could, you could like that or dislike yeah, it. Yeah, but I mean, we wouldn't have Apocalypse Now if not, you know, for people rising up and saying like, yeah. the Vietnam War is unjust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But one thing I would I would argue in that space is, you know, I think I, this is true for me and probably, uh, and I'll, I'll ask for your reflections, but like any experience that happens externally, like, you know, whether it's war, protest, or some other experience that's rocking the world, depending on your age, the percentage that that represents of your entire lived experience is greater mm -hmm. or lesser. So, you know, like if I'm 20 years old and the Iraq war has been going on for five years, or in my case, you know, when I was in school, the Iraq war had been going on my entire time in school. It's like, oh, my goodness, yeah. <laughs> like the the middle, the, you know, like what's going on in the Middle East and and the Americans, this is out of control. I have to I, this has to stop. And then like everyone's like, you know, talking about what are we going to do? And you're like in the seat of 
I have a voice where, you know, and people are even at the time, I remember saying like, does, do we need art? Like, yeah, what is exactly. Art's role well, that's, in this that's exactly the point. And I think in a later interview with David Hockney, I saw something where the, again, they asked him this question and he's like, well, that's on TV, but I'm actually looking at the arrival of spring and nobody cares that spring just arrived. Mm-hmm. And how it changes the light on the trees, and how the dewdrops are different, and whatever. Um, yeah. But I don't even know where I'm getting at. Of course, everything's possible, and there are no rules, and you can do whatever you want. But, uh, but if we bring it back to the film, I think you always make, you always make the best arguments for the films <laughs> that you're trying to break mm-hmm. down, and you do it you do it in a beautiful way. But like in the film, there's this idea of the breeze. Yeah, you know, some, yeah. he talks about. Sometimes you can feel the breeze, even like, you know, when you're They're at the beach and they feel the, the breeze, but then he's like, sometimes it even comes through in our neighborhood and they're far from the beach. Yeah. Yeah. And you can just, you can just feel it on your face. But like, I think that there are these, again, these kind of visceral references in the film that remind us that a lot of our, our self and our identity and our lived experience is comprised of like, the way the the moonlight hits our skin, the way we feel the breeze against our face, and that those things also are the things that, when we feel at peace or natural, like you're you're always about this, which I think is another beautiful thing. Which is like, what if we could all have access to the Raphael school or way of being? Which is like, <laughs> what if what we could total... all grow up so privileged that we could just never it, work and think about? Uh, well, that's the thing. Like yeah. the the abolishment of privilege would be the would be the opposite of that would would be like the res, the result would be a feeling of of peace and i think you know again to counter your position that american film is about conflict yes enough with the conflict let's get back to the peace <laughs> yeah. and, um and if we could be at peace then we could actually see each other one of the, one of the things i heard that was amazing about the yeah. film i just want to mention for a second is like the barry jenkins read this book when he was in school about filmmaking and and eyes and how you can like, because the three characters don't really look alike between the three chapters, but he said he cast them for you know their eyes. Well, they're all <laughs> the, averting the way they exp- averting direct uh, uh, eye contact with, and with sometimes the they make eye contact, yeah, right? Like rarely. there's this kind of sheepness. The eyes are very very important yeah. to that. Um, in fact, the last scene, right? The very very last scene is the little boy looking back at you and you know making eye contact yeah. with you for the first time yeah. in the film. But um, I only I bring it up because um, I don't know. Uh, one of, one of the things I find interesting is the, the introduction of realism in, in film, and I think there was a mo- movement in the seventies of sort of auteur filmmakers, and films before that were too produced, and then it was more raw, and there's always waves of it making it more real. And maybe what I'm trying to get at is that there's there's always film always brings this beautification um, that I think can be tricky that we we feel like if you document something and you make it so beautiful and you're like okay that issue is solved or, and mm-hmm. when it hasn't and mm-hmm. like you you I'm not sure if I'm articulating it right, but no, but, no, I get it. But like sometimes if, if you, you this you, is very attractive, this movie, for, for yeah, sure. yeah, or yeah. You know what I mean? It's a beautiful like there's film. is mm-hmm. there a problem there? I mean maybe it's not a problem. Not everything needs to be a no, problem, but no. <clears throat> I think um there I was trying to talk about that earlier, which is if you bring the art house to the hood, like 
what if you grew up in that neighborhood and you wanted to make a film on your phone or you wanted to tell your story through a comic book? I, I, I would like to believe that it would be as well accepted as a film that feels like this major production. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I, you know, I, that's, I think it's an interesting argument. It's a hard one to discuss because there are so few examples of ugly objects being accepted. Well, yeah, um, I, I think, I think the the mafia genre is somewhat uh, relatable. Uh, you get the the coolest guys and the criminals, but they're also funny, and you you start to think they are the good guys, and the cops are mean, and you you start mm-hmm. you start uh, emotionally you're on their side at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. There's a certain manipulation yeah. though, in the in the way. And I think it has a lot to do with the attractiveness and the charismatic nature of the, the cast. And I think the Gomorrah series in, in, um, is an Italian mafia show that introduced a new level of realism, and it's more depressing. The, the, the mob guys are not funny. They're just doing mm-hmm. terrible stuff, and they're human trafficking, and you're like, oh, man. And I just stopped watching it. So there's this weird thing also that at the end of the day, it's also entertainment. And so how much realism can you handle when it's also you're watching it to have a good time? Yeah, I mean, a, maybe that's uh, the, the the tricky thing I'm talking no, no, about you're, with, the, you're right. with the sort of aestheticizing Just, of terrible situations versus shining a light on it and trying to no, no. Make, I think you're bringing awareness. up a really interesting point. Like yeah. how you know how often or for how what period of our li- how much of our lives do we want to spend sitting in discomfort? Right, like I think that's one of the well, the issues that comes yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. And can you can you at the same time, time aestheticize something? make it look cool and beautiful and at the same time create awareness or are those things contradictory well i don't know like i've had this question on my mind a while because we're dealing right now with a you know a lot of certainly white fragility where white people feel uncomfortable with the current state of affairs right so they feel this visceral discomfort yeah there's there's a new thing now where it's all of a sudden if you're quiet you're a racist and you're like wait a minute i didn't know i was a racist and then did you watch the new Chappelle? um Eight minutes and forty three seconds special. Oh no, where is it? It just came out on like, YouTube. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Oh, I want to see it. He, so he did a special concert in June. He talks about this issue in particular, but also like why he's silent. Um, but back to the issue, like it, it's part of this, but it's also not. But like being uncomfortable. Um, like I've been thinking about this personally because after many many years of kind of sitting inside of this discomfort and acknowledging it like in my work and like countless you know kind of meetings and and realizing that like my discomfort is only like one tenth of the discomfort you feel if you don't feel like you belong if you're from a you know marginalized yeah and if you have a very bad economic outlook you're so fragile and yeah yeah but over time what i've come like to feel guilty about is actually i feel though i'll feel emotionally drained like i did last week there is a I feel also cathartic when I get this opportunity to cry or to feel and for people to accept the way I feel in misery. I, I don't know do how you, to explain this except yeah. I enjoy crying. Do you ever a think bit. that there's a problem in uh, addressing your privilege is sometimes almost bragging? Yeah, that's called virtue signaling. Yeah, but that's know? not exactly, I, I don't know if that's exactly what it is, but when you start a talk, it's like, okay, I grew up, my parents had five yachts. I'm guilty, I'm privileged, whatever. Like, 
That's almost yeah, it makes me cringe for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like none of that matters. Okay, so like, how many yachts have you given away? Would be my next question. You know, like start to act on that privilege. Uh, otherwise, you're right. It's like a form of, um, it's like a it's a bizarre humble brag yeah. that feels yeah. feels super weird. Um, I we have that in. I mean, our CEO said that recently, and I wasn't quite sure how to deal with it. He's like, I'm the poster child of white privilege. I'm like, ooh, that makes me really uncomfortable. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah. So, like, what have you done about that? What, what, it, How have you acted? If you're, like, so after you become self-aware, I think, you know, I hope a person who's self-aware is aware enough to know that they like to reconcile that to to take steps that help them get to it because it's not comfortable so you can just sit in that discomfort like i mentioned and learn to enjoy it and like you could yeah, accuse or, me or you, you could go back to american psycho where it's just full on like <laughs> yeah my dad owns the company and i'm going to destroy everyone in my way and yeah. i need everything but they do show that people who act charitably in life um are much much happier than those who choose to sort of accumulate yeah. and accumulate and accumulate and I know that you believe in this too, because you've given an, a lot of your time and attention to helping others, but not for the reasons of being recognized for that, right? Like, but you're not like, I just want to, you know, I want to be recognized for how charitable I am. You just do it because you think it's, you know, the right way to live, and it's part of what brings you happiness. Uh, I don't know, but uh, the um, if we go back to the movie. Uh, yeah, it's a great movie, uh, and uh, I just wanted to pick at it, but uh, overall. Well, the last thing I'd say is, like, you brought up something about, um, do I have to watch this? Do I have to, like, signal that I've watched this and enjoyed it? And, like, you know, there's a certain performance in us all jumping to, like, watch certain well, things or be woke enough. And I, yeah. I think I don't want to sweep that under the rug because I think it's an important issue. And I think that's why, for me anyway, I didn't have no trouble picking this film when you suggested because it. Because we 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 dissected "Sorry to Bother You" a while ago, which also predicted a lot of the things that are going on now. And so yeah. it's, it's just yeah. as relevant, but it's a whole lot funnier and it's more comfortable to watch. Well, it's also not prediction when it's like literally really reality. It's like what's been going yeah. on for hundreds of years, like four hundred <laughs> years of prediction. No, no, <laughs> how but, did they know? But there is a, a, a layer of like protest and media culture and memes yeah. that is very real right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, this movie was a bit harder for me to talk about than uh, "Sorry to Bother You." No, but I think it's um, yeah. it's good to to get it. Thank you for talking about it yeah. and for being open to doing that, and also like. I I don't. There's a certain power and privilege in pretending to to feel comfortable with things. That's what I was trying to get at earlier. Like mm. when you hear me speak, and I feel like I'm not super comfortable. I'm just like I've well, started to acknowledge. I've acknowledged that I'm on like a journey, yeah, and that every one, day one of the has things that's spent. uncomfortable is not the fact that there is hardship. It's the fact that you have no expertise. So what <laughs> voice of authority do you have when it's like? Well, that's just the thing. No one needs to be an authority in this. No, no, I know. Matter. But when you go on a podcast and you're speaking in public, uh, you yeah. tend to talk about things that you know about. So I'm, I'm comfortable about mm -hmm. talking about the history of abstract painting or the history of generative software. And I feel like I have something to contribute there. But if I have to talk about the hardship of like growing up with uh, drug addicted parents and repressed sexuality, and uh, that's just not something that. 
I haven't mm. read much about it. I haven't seen a lot of movies about it. I haven't lived it. I don't have friends that went through that. Yeah. Uh, yep, yep. So that's maybe the, the big part. Well, of Well, I was just going to say. I think one of the things that you can do. I, I, I can um, I can help people with writing grants. Like that's something well, I can do, or I can help people with uh, uh, color theory, or uh, you know. Or you could be transparently vulnerable and say like. <laughs> you know, be honest with yourself and, uh, and, and I can too. And so can our listeners and just say like, you know, this is where I'm at and I don't understand. And, you know, I want to seek to understand and I can recognize that I've had a different lived experience than another person. And that's okay. Like there really can't be, yeah, I don't yeah. think that but judgment, maybe, maybe you know, belongs. what this filmmaker would want, I imagine is to, uh, uh, to, well, no, to, I think to, it, to dissect and, uh, uh, distill a lived experience and bring it to people who haven't lived that experience yeah absolutely yeah. like and so i think he said i just wanted to take this is a this is my a story that resonated with me a memory of my of one of my memories and i wanted to make that visible you know and i think that's what we all do as artists and one I of the things i think is there, interesting though. in that i don't think that's what all artists do but that okay that but is, a lot of artists yeah. okay well i'll just say like i'll put things out into the world and i don't necessarily expect people to to interpret it the same way like they're going to bring their own experience to the rece- I, reception I, of that work I, I have to say that the, i really believe that there are no rules so if you say art should be who you are and come from you i think there must be examples throughout art history of people completely faking it and doing it wonderfully <laughs> you know sure. like like uh maybe uh klaus kinski wasn't a crazy madman but he he created that character, and mm-hmm. uh, you know what I mean. Like, not, not. I don't know if that's true or not, but th- there must be tons of examples of someone writing the most amazing superhero stories and being a complete re- recluse. And uh, you don't have to be James Bond to write James Bond. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Imagination does belong in our, and imagination can be based on the projection of something that's never existed. Yeah. Um, so it, it, I, it, it's funny when you start uh, analyzing things and, and deciding why things are good, but then no, it's, yeah, the reason right. that's good doesn't apply to all other create, creative endeavors. No, I'd say one of my like one of my char- the characteristics that's weakest about me is like that um, I tend to try and overanalyze or reduce things to academic arguments, and in this particular case, like honestly, the reason I love this film was that I it. I felt it touched me personally. Mm. Like I really had a personal experience yeah, yeah. with it and I didn't leave the film being like, Oh, that shot was awesome. This. And like, I, yeah, I didn't know who Barry Jenkins was. I didn't know who well, for me, McCraney was. Il Posto was yeah. much more hitting close to home. Like, uh, mm-hmm. that feeling of just being awkward at a job interview or the being too early at a party or trying like, Try, but I know that feeling that of like doesn't seem so practical, and like those small things is like, oh yeah, that that seems that hits me more. But when you're scanning Netflix, I, there's this like if we're real for just another moment, like there's going to be films that look like they're made for you, and there's going to be films that make that look like they're made for someone else. Yeah, and I can see why you wouldn't take a chance on one that doesn't look doesn't reflect you. And I think a lot of people have that feeling, including myself, sometimes like, oh, do I really want to get myself into this other person's reality? You know, and this brings it back to strange days. And then I think with this film, <clears throat> you know, if I had had that, I wouldn't have come across this great story, this great portrait. Yeah, yeah. 
I, and, and so like a lot of what we approach our choices with in art and certainly as viewers and selections, like, should I go to this show or should I go to that show or should well, I go see this play yeah, it's or like, go see that play? Y- you might not be fully into country music, but then there's someone like, oh, this is, uh, this actually rises above the rest and it's a kind of genre defining. Yeah. And, uh, even though you don't like the genre, you'll, you'll, this is interesting and led to a lot of other things and yeah and i wouldn't have been i won't i wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now if someone hadn't at some point been like hey you should really look at this weird like fluxus film or like it's just a blink it's a you know it's just one it's a blink and it's 60 seconds long it's like one frame per second um you know and this person blinks and i'm like you know like what do you mean (laughs) like why should i see that um so yeah, these these things do have the power to kind of shift our perception and change who we are and how we, you know, act towards making and receiving. But um, I don't know. That's a gross general generalization yeah. of this whole, whole recap. But the, if we go back to the strange days thing, we were trying to get to, and from Il Posto to like, what is reality and how do we, you know, how how can you experience someone else's reality? Yeah. I think filmmaking is still can be very powerful in that regard. And right now, like, I think people saw a film, you know, shot on a cell phone of someone's reality in, in this case, George Floyd's like dying and they couldn't believe what they were seeing. No. And it's so close to the strange days kind of yeah. dystopia that we're living in now that it's just like, well, that's how a I lot feel of about people the news felt in that general. viscerally. Just read a headline. And you're like, mm-hmm. There's no way that happened. Like if, if someone, well, wrote this that one, in, you couldn't deny you're like sitting there. No, for no. Like, but what I mean is know, if, if, if uh, someone was like, Oh, let's write uh, a political satire. And I think a lot of stuff that would come up be like, no, that's too ridiculous. That's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so that's the weird thing in this time where you keep reading headlines. And you're like, wait, really? But I'm just a very, I, I will say like, I'm very encouraged by how people acted this time. Um, mm-hmm. And that, the changes are, you know, are happening. It, it just feels like, you know, I wasn't around when the Stonewall riots happened, but like, you know, God, that really changed the world, right? Like that, that really set in course, you know, I, set I, on course. Here's, like a completely here's maybe history. where I get a little suspicious with this narrative and iconography and filmmaking. Was it really the Stonewall riots and is it as simple? I, no, of course not. I, I, not I was looking simple. up. There's like I was look, millions of people. No, no, I know, but I was looking up a little bit like uh, which country gives the most, the, the word freedom in the U.S. comes up a lot and I was looking up like which countries are the most free and then for some mm-hmm. reason the Netherlands shows up for a lot of personal freedoms and so the Netherlands is obviously not as good as PR as the U.S. but they were the first to introduce equal uh, same-sex marriage in 2001. Hmm. So was it really Stonewall that catapulted that in the Netherlands? And, and it, it, like, I'm, I'm not critiquing Stonewall, I'm not critiquing anyone involved, but it, it's this weird thing where U.S. is so good at making these iconic shots, hmm. and like people think like, oh, the Americans solved World War II when actually the Russians had way more of a uh, sacrifice than the Americans, but the Americans just bombarded the world with heroic movies and stories yeah a lot of people say that that's actually because um so not that particular example but one of the arguments that you're making is that america from an ideological standpoint is very successful at advertising through art right like yeah yeah yeah. american art has allowed america american ideology and america's position in history to become the dominant one right and and there's a lot of truth to it uh, 
at the same time it's all blending together and it's weird but the the, the stonewall thing or it, it, yeah yeah it, of course because it's here in canada we had we have our own history yeah you know and you know i live with an american um Kristen is like amazing and she she teaches me about like all my misperceptions of america even though i lived in the u.s for a while um i think it's different if you grow up there but then simultaneously you know i've had I've given her some of my lived experience about Canada. And then she's learned things about Canada that I didn't even know, you know. Um, but we have a very different history here than they do in Europe, in China. I think it's interesting when global movements happen because there's a certain necessity to, like, bracket, you know, to say, like, this is what <laughs> is happening. Yeah, um, yeah I've, I've seen things, like evidence that there are shifts in cave painting that happened at the same time at, on different continents 30,000 years ago, that they went to another step of representation and realism at the mm. same time in Australia and in France. And so there, there's, there's a mystery. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm certain there's, like, with, any, with this movement and with previous ones, we're, there, we're, there's as many stories untold, certainly way more than are told. So... Um, the nuance of that shouldn't be lost anyway. No. I think again, this the movie is really about nuance and identity, and that you can be more than one thing. And um, I think that you and I are both more than one thing too. Our listeners are. I'm always trying to just recap everything, mm-hmm. get us to the end. But like, what are we gonna do? Uh, what are we gonna do next week? Like, how are we gonna? So I think like we're we're in this position. We're making you know strides as a as an audience, as a civilization, or maybe not to use a, the term civilization as a people. But, you know, we do also need to remember that a life is full of tears, anger, and laughter. <laughs> and, and that's why next, you, movie, next week's movie is Spinal Tap. Okay, yeah. Tell us a little bit about why. Do you want to mention anything about why you chose Spinal Tap? Um, I think uh, the, the, my love of heavy music has been very uh, foundational in my identity or the sense of uh, a group and the uh, sense of fun and a sense of nihilism and a lot of d- different things that it could sh- shape my character and I was trying mm-hmm. to think of the best movie to address this is it. one of those movies too where it's like I don't know for me anyway it was like when it I think it was it was after it came out long after that someone was like you have to see this movie it's like one of those films where if it comes up in conversation I, someone I just want to wholeheartedly recommend this movie <laughs> at this moment like it, you'll you'll laugh a lot it's very enjoyable and for a moment it's a little bit of escapism and then actually formally it's I don't know if it's true but it's the first mockumentary mm-hmm. so actually in the history of filmmaking they introduced a new genre which is not easy to do um so i wholeheartedly recommend watching this movie okay. anyone of any background it, will enjoy it i, I guarantee is it, this is spinal tap or spinal tap i can't remember i think it's spinal tap it's the first one okay and then I'll, right. I'll i'll bring in some details even the spelling of the name spinal tap is funny um, okay. it, it, my name has an umlaut the, the two dots on the e and there's a whole history of metal bands putting an umlaut that you don't pronounce so <laughs> Motley Crue or Motorhead, they have an umlaut on the O. It doesn't mean you pronounce the O different. It just like looks badass. And but an umlaut is always supposed to be on a vowel. But then uh, mm-hmm. in Spinal Tap, they put the umlaut on the N. I think. So, <laughs> <laughs> a, there's a lot of stuff in there. It's just okay. Yeah. Well, we're looking forward to that next week. Yeah. Um, thanks we everyone who listened. 
And yeah, I mean, if you found this relaxing, not relaxing, let us know. Love hearing from you. And we've been receiving some suggestions, even people asking if they can send in field recordings, which was an old thing we did where we asked you to share your audio reality with us. And I've been thinking, Raph, maybe we can invite people to continue to do that. If you'd like us to send your reality um, yeah. where you're listening, yeah. uh, please continue. Uh, yeah, let's re- reboot that. And, then, and again, we're, we always want to promote um, and help you out. So if you have an advertisement for something coming up, maybe something in the past that we can help uh, promote, please send uh, a little advertisement to us. But always great to hear from everyone. And thanks for listening this week. All right. Take it easy. Hey. Bye. your head rest in my hand. Relax. I got you. I promise. I'm not gonna let you go. Hey, man, I got you. There you go. Ten seconds. See that right there? You in the middle of the world, man. That's good. You like that? <laughs> <laughs> More athletic. There you go. There you go. Yeah. I think you ready. I think we got a swimmer. You wanna try? You ready to swim? Go. Yeah, man. So I totally forgot, Raph, to mention something while we were recording uh, the podcast, which is that the final um, chapter and the final scenes take place in this diner in Miami, this really old school diner that's like so emblematic of um, an American diner. I, um, when I went to see this movie, like was blown in my seat when I, when I saw that scene because I had just been at that diner a year earlier and it and it had been like this incredible experience. The one in Miami, um, you went there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And when I was, it's for both Chris and I, it's like seared into our memory because there's this Great huge mirror in, in the back and really exceptional. Yeah. 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 But also this is like old school diners are increasingly rare in Canada. They're almost like, there's almost none left in the United States. There's still people that seemingly want to preserve them. They're like, you know, until their last well, living day but, but the, this is one the of those. diners in miami are more uh the menu is more cuban oriented so i think that's why mm-hmm. they're still relevant well this one you know we went for breakfast it was like there were four cops sitting around a table the light was coming in it wasn't at nighttime so it's not like in the film but it was like this bright miami morning like sunlight and it was like a movie scene and that's why i just wanted to bring mm-hmm. it up because like we went into that diner and we're like are we in a movie and then, you know, a year later, we're at the I, movies, and yeah. then that diner was there. I think, <laughs> it was crazy. I think, you know, once again, great movie and very intense and special. But I thought the diner scene was a little bit, 
it made me a little suspicious of the movie at, at like being manipulative because it was so safe and perfect and they played this really nice music and everyone was quiet mm -hmm. and there was no I, I guess it was kind of a shock in the sequence of the film because everything was so terrible before and then in the diner all of a sudden it's like old music coming from a jukebox <laughs> with the best yeah. sound quality and yeah yeah it's also yeah, yeah, it, yeah. the guy is the cook and the waiter at the same time but for some reason there's no stress yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's totally i mean he says he's exhausted but it, it is yeah. a beautiful like everything is perfect and it's so perfect hollywood that i had actually remarked that a year earlier that this it, that Kristen and I were like we're in a movie right now. Can you believe this? And then we literally were in. A movie. It is so like it is funny that yeah. Hollywood ended up in California, and it, it could have been in Florida because it's just as photogenic. Yeah, I mean and it's closer to New I York. So I, Miami overall, when I visit when I visited, is like semi disappointing because it's like mostly just a highway with like strip malls along. <laughs> yeah, but if but you then do you some googling like, in Miami, there's there's so yeah. many people from around the world making food there exactly the way it should be. It's uh, incredible. No, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that it's a little. We could put this like bury it after the soundtrack or something, but yeah. I, I forgot to mention it was such a remarkable experience to be in the movie set um, before seeing a movie. Very cool, Jeremy. Anyway. You're a traveling privileged person who gets to live <laughs> the movie true. before. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. Thanks, everyone. Okay. Bye-bye.